Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. We are currently at um, the W Santiago. Um, after three weeks on the road together, which is crazy, uh, awesome adventures. And we've known each other for seven, eight years now. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I don't, where do we meet? I think, talks? I think we met at genius network. Yeah, that feels right. A little background. Uh, I know you kind of through the lens of operations. Yeah. Um, and because, and I'll let you kind of, uh, give some, color to this, but you help build college pro painters and also 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And uh, got junk, you jumped in when they were at $2 million in revenue and took them to 100 plus. Yep. Um, so yeah, if you could fill in a little bit of the story on that, I Actually. think that both are super interesting businesses. Sure. I'll give you the kind of the, the two-minute helicopter tour what got me to where I am. So groomed as an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur. Both sets of grandparents were entrepreneurs. Uh, we were groomed, my brother and sister and I, to all be entrepreneurs. And we've pretty much all run our own companies for the last 15 to 25 years. Oh, so wow. it's really all we ever knew. We were always told having a job would be a bad idea. Being in control of your time was what entrepreneurship was about and the money would follow. So that was really the setup that we had. I had my first real company when I was 21. I had 12 full-time employees when I was 21 years old. Ran that business for three years. And then I joined the head office of a company called College Pro Painters, which went on to become the largest house painting company in the world. I was in the top 30 people of the 8,800 person company. So every year, there was about 30 of us that had to go out and hire 800 franchisees. We had four months to do that. And then those 800 had to hire 8,000 painters in four weeks. And then in the next four months, we did $64 million in revenue. September 1st, 8,800 kids quit and went back to school. 30 of us got drunk. September 2nd, we started again. And I did that for four years. So that was where I really learned my operational chops was really, how do you hire 8,800 people in a year and do it four years in a row? There's not a lot of companies on the planet that have done that. So that was where I learned operations. Left there and I was a partner in a franchising group called Boyd Auto Body. In the U.S., it's called Gerber Auto Collision. We grew that to be the largest collision repair chain in the world. It's now about a $900 million market cap, publicly traded company. Um, did that for four and a half years. Left there and I was hired as the president of a private currency company. We built that up, had 900 employees there, sold that company in March of 2000, right at the crash of the stock market. So we sold for $64 million. But by the time we were able to get out three months later, the stock had completely crashed with the NASDAQ going down by 78%. We got out for 3 million instead of 64 million. So I did what everybody would do at that point. When you've lost everything, you become a garbage man. So I, <laughs> I joined my best friend, Brian, and I went in for three months to coach him on how to grow what was then the rubbish boys was becoming 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I joined him as the 14th employee. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. We went from $2 million to $106 million in revenue, ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for, twice ranked number one in British Columbia to work for. We had no debt. We gave up no equity. We were profitable every single year, and we were operating in four countries and 330 cities. So because of doing that, I started getting asked to do a lot of speaking events. 
Uh, I've now been paid to speak in 26 countries, and then you witnessed last week to be paid on my seventh continent. Yes. So I got uh, to speak in Antarctica as well. But I've spoken all over the world at about 800 paid speaking events. I've written five books. And um, now I run an organization called the COO Alliance, where there's no entrepreneurs allowed to join. It's only their second-in-commands. I have a second-in-command podcast where we never interview the CEO. We only interview the COO. And that's kind of my gig. Yes. I love that. The only thing that I did not know in there, I forgot about the uh, <laughs> the $64 million exit that went down to three. Yeah. Painful. Yeah. yeah. Very painful. Crazy. And I mean, we could uh, we could dig into... 17 different paths based on those 46 bullets you just gave me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, what I didn't know was your backdrop in growing up in an entrepreneurial family mm. and sort of being groomed through that, which is really interesting because I also know your sister. Yeah. Um, and it's very clear that um, it runs in the blood Yeah, in, in some way. I mean, she's very sharp, very dialed, very on top of things. It was every conversation that I recall, mostly with my dad and my grandparents, but every discussion was an entrepreneurial tack. Mm. Whether it was, you know, my grandmother saying, you know, get out of the cottage, go sell something. Like I'm eight, <laughs> right? You know, here's, and she would help me like, one, my grandmother helped me um, go up to bingo night, or not bingo night, uh, bridge night at the clubhouse at the cottage and take drink orders from all these 75-year-old women and then run to the corner store a quarter mile away and come back and sell them to them. And I was charging them a dollar per, per soda and getting them for 25 cents at the store. And she helped me get that little business going. Brilliant. That's not a normal thing to do with a 10-year-old kid. No. So, yeah, every discussion we ever had growing up, all of the the grooming that we had, my dad would make us stand up and tell stories in front of my brother and sister, and he'd give us three items, a champagne glass, um, a camera, and a, a boardroom table. And we would have to tell a story standing up. And it made us think on our feet. It gave us confidence to speak in front of others. We had to you know, uh, engage and be engaging. Those are all entrepreneurial skills. Mm. So that was my life. I love that. Yeah. Also, it reminds me when we got to uh, Koyaki, I yeah. think is how you Something say like it. That, yeah. Something <laughs> we had a hard time with yeah. the pronunciation of that one. Yeah. Uh, when we got to the last city we were in, um, we go to a pizza shop and we get pizza. And I was like, what do you have to drink? And I'm looking in his fridge. And, and you know, there's broken English. We don't speak Spanish at all. So, and he's like, uh, Coca-Cola. He was like, or water. And I was like, no, no. And he's like, cerveza. He's like, Coke light. He just started listing other things. And I was like, yeah, that. And then we go sit out on the sidewalk and he disappears. And he 100% ran to the store next door and bought it and bought whatever we wanted. But, and I think to some people that would piss them off. And to me, when I saw that, I thought, man, you solved the problem that I had, which was, I didn't like what was in your fridge. Right. And I'm more than happy to give you an extra dollar or two if you will just go get me the thing that I want. I right? was, so I was groomed with that from a very young age. I saw the exact same thing happen when I was 13 years old, Prince Edward Island, Canada. We were at a restaurant. My dad ordered baked potato with his lobster. They didn't have any sour cream. And the waiter ran to the, to the corner store. And my dad has told me that story probably mm. 10 times since about the waiter going to buy sour cream and bringing it back. And, I, and I've learned that hustle and solve the problem and being, in, you know, um, in, ingenuitive, <laughs> having ingenuity, whatever yes. the fuck that, right? <laughs> and, and that's that's not a normal employee skill, sadly, right? Employee, and, and so I just didn't know that world. Yeah, I think it's it's sadly not a normal. Um, I was going to say it's not a normal human trait, but I actually think that it once was 
And I, I'm concerned that maybe we've conditioned it out of people Mm -hmm. and maybe our educational system or society conditions it out of people as we sort of try to structure things. You know who I heard say something about that is Joe Rogan on one of his podcasts. He said, hard times produce hard men, Mm. hard men produce soft times, soft times produce soft men, soft men produce hard times. And I think we're at that stage now where we've become soft. Yeah. And because of that, we're creating the next era of the next 40, 50 years of hard times that we're going to go through. You think back to our grandparents, they were hard men. Fucking right. And they worked really hard to give their kids a better life. Yep. Right. So my dad was given a better life and my dad didn't want to have to work as hard as his dad. He wanted a better life. He wanted to give his kids a better life. So he gave us a softer life. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's what we're going through. We were thankfully not completely raised soft because we were shown to be entrepreneurs, but he also showed us how being an entrepreneur would allow us to have all the free time. You know, I mm-hmm. took 13 weeks vacation last year. Yeah. That's a little bit of a soft life. Yeah. My grandfather never would have taken 13 weeks vacation, but yes. he retired at 55. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. My grandpa was definitely hard as fuck. Yeah. I mean, he always, was, Oh man. World war two, tool and die maker, firefighter, um, no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. And those are his hobbies. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, my grandfather, like all that stuff, exactly the same. So I think that I think we're in that era now where kids have this, especially entrepreneurs. We were talking about this earlier in the trip that I think society and the mass media have done a real disservice to Gen Z in saying being an entrepreneur is cool and being an entrepreneur, you're going to make all this money. Being an entrepreneur is really fucking hard. Yeah. And I think too many of them think it's going to be easy or it's going to be that success is going to be handed to them. You've gone through hard times growing your companies. I've gone through hard times growing my companies. That's part of growing a great company. But unless you're willing to go through that, I don't think people will get there. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that leads me to, you mentioned, uh, the impressive thing, most impressive thing to me about, uh, college pro painters is this, revolving door of staff right is so that model was hiring right yeah and not quite revolving door because we never we had no turnover during the year it was planned turnover like yeah. it was like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, no to, for, to clarify so and so i grew up in vector marketing right in cutco yeah. um which is same it, same model similar very model. similar yeah. so the your your workforce are college kids mm-hmm. and really the glue of the model is management the college kids come and go through the seasons, right? But the management, you want to keep the management. So your your timing of this comment is so extraordinary because this past year, in the last six months, College Pro finally closed after 50 years in business. They started in 1971. Wow. 2021 was their last year. And the reason was they couldn't find 800 university students to run franchises anymore because all of those university entrepreneurial kids were running flip businesses, dot-com businesses, online hustles. They were day trading, you know, crypto, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find the, the you and I to go and work hard. They didn't want to run painting businesses anymore. So they literally shut down a company that had been extraordinarily successful for a long time. Okay. So this is, we were it's a bit of a sign of the times, right? It is. And it also, I have a, um, I have a good friend. Let's see if I can make this a short loop, but very good friend that owns a real estate company in San Diego, Sam Karamian. And when COVID hit, he had like full tilt, holy fuck, because California wouldn't let people interact with other people, right. much, much less sell real estate. Right? Yeah. You need to do that to sell real estate, at least at this point. Um, and what I said to him was, 
look, and he, he started citing the macro trends in the comparison to 2008. And I said, Sam, you, you aren't big enough for that to matter. Mm-hmm. And what I meant by that is that when you are micro in your ecosystem, you can outwork the ecosystem. Yep. It's better to have wind behind your sails. But if you are the Keller Williams of the world, that's, you are a that's part a of the story. ecosystem, yeah. right? So then the macro trend is going to impact you. Yep. So when you look at something like College Pro Painters, my question isn't, um, is, it a sign of, is it a sign of the times and is that business dead? I guess that is a question. But I, the bigger question for me is, how do you outwork it, right? And how do you find the people to do it? How do you change hiring practices to do it? I think, it, I think the model had to, and I can't stand the word pivot, but I think, I think college pro painters as a business could have found another business to franchise to university students and made more money with less pain in the ass. Mm. I think they didn't necessarily have to paint houses. They could have created a crypto trading franchise business. They could have created a online flip kind of business. They could have created, they could have found other things to do and taken all the talent of the recruiting, training, marketing, sales, operations, culture. All those leadership skills they had could have been turned into a different kind of a business. Instead, they gave up. So I think maybe painting houses was just a tougher model to be in, but I don't think they had to quit when they had the operational excellence to do other things. Um, yeah, man, that's a, didn't expect you to say that. That's a, a stiff shift. Um, and, no, no, right? Like, no. Well, though, not- about your talk about the whole global part, though, if you were like the Keller Williams, I had a very similar talk in 2008, 2009 with a friend in Vancouver who owned three restaurants. And he was complaining about the global financial crisis having an impact on his restaurants. I'm like, wait a second. You have three fucking locations. Stop reading the newspaper. Stop being online, being distracted by social media. Go and tell everyone for three square blocks around every location about how amazing your restaurants are and they'll grow. Today, the Cactus Club chain is a massive, incredible chain in Vancouver with probably 20 locations, probably close to $200 million in revenue mm. because they decided to focus on what mattered and not let this global crisis that didn't really impact them at all get three locations, right? To your point. Yeah. Well, there, uh, I think there's a lot uh, buried in that, that perspective and that comment. Not oddly, but it ties directly back to hard work, mm-hmm. right? It ties back to, do you have the character, uh, character traits and values that drive hard work and you have people on the team that are willing to do it, but it starts with the entrepreneur. So we had a, we had a, what we called the secret formula at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I've taught entrepreneurs the secret formula for years since it goes back to the hard work component. So the formula was F times F times E equals success. The first F was focus. And you can actually, you could think about your business today or anybody watching or listening could think about their business. Let's say for the last month, how focused were you? How focused was your team? How focused was your marketing? How focused were your efforts? Did you have the right um, plan in place? Did you just, were you distracted by social media? Were you distracted by email? Or were you focused on the top five kind of critical few things versus the important many? And you give yourself a percentage rating of one to a hundred percent on focus. So just come up with a number in your head of how focused you and your company was for the last month, right? Let's say you're 80% focused. The next F is for faith. How much faith do you have in your team, in yourself, in your skills, Mm. in your plan, in your marketing, in your model? And and are you doing things to protect your confidence and your faith in things? Are you getting rid of the wrong people? Are you growing their skills? Are you you making sure that you hire the right experts to help you so that you feel confident with everything? And how much faith do you have? Give yourself a percentage rating of 1% to 100% on faith. So maybe you've got 80% faith around everything. And then the last E is for effort. 
right? How much hard work are you really putting in? Like, are you working nine to five? Are you working five to nine? Are you working hard? Are you hardly working? And are you really, when you're working, are you putting the right effort in that right direction? Because if you're working hard but going in the wrong direction, it doesn't matter. So the focus and effort all combine. So you give yourself a percentage rating of one through 100% on effort. Now, if you get 80% focus times 80% effort times 80% faith, or sorry, focus, faith, and effort, that 80 times 80 times 80, 0.8 times 0.8 times 0.8 yields a 51.2% chance of success. Mm. Those are shitty odds, Mm -hmm. right? You will not be successful. You might as well go to Vegas and put it all on red. If you get 90% focus times 90% faith times 90% effort, it still only multiplies up to 72.8% chance of success. 98% 98% focus times 98% faith times 98% effort gives you a 94% chance of success. Where most entrepreneurial companies and even the big corporate companies go off is they're missing on one or all three of those areas. Mm-hmm. And if you can really get focused and really ensure that your faith and confidence are protected and really put the effort in the right direction, that's where success comes from. Yeah, well, I think focus is a massive challenge for many, 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 many people right now. People and companies. Yeah. Right? Because we're distracted by the next good idea. We're distracted by the next business book that we read that's random and gives us 12 new things to work on. We're distracted by the person that we meet that gives us an idea or a company that we see that's doing something else or the the economy or, or just life, right? Focus is tough. Well, I'm going to go back to, to hiring for a second because the uh, we, we were having breakfast earlier and we got into this conversation about really hiring and people. And we're sitting at this terrace in the W Santiago and this woman comes up and says, oh, Brad, how are you doing today? She was like, you're, you're back for breakfast. Is everything okay with your room? Blah, blah, blah. And when she left, you said, man, it's amazing that they are so good with names. And I was like, it doesn't really count for me. I have a fucking mohawk. Like, people just remember me. Right. Um, but they remember uh, Cameron and Ashley and what Ashley likes to eat. And uh, it's super impressive. Yeah. And the you told a, a couple different examples of significantly successful companies um, and how they have these radiant personalities in their companies in both one question were we don't teach them to do that we find the people that already are that yeah um, and so i think there's some core value conversation in there but there's also just the question of the mechanics of hiring so you know when you're running operations hiring is that's such a fucking significant challenge um, and focal point uh, how do you think about hiring as a system? It's funny. So I hear people all the time saying hiring is a challenge or marketing is a challenge or PR is a challenge or finance is a challenge or IT is a challenge. It is until you're really good at it, yeah. at which point it's very easy. So one of the easiest things in the world for me to do is hiring. I'm, but I'm operationally world-class at the interviewing recruiting or sorry, recruiting, interviewing, hiring, onboarding, and leadership development of people because I had to do when you're doing it with eight thousand eight hundred people a year and you're the 30 people doing it, you have to become world class at that. The hard stuff for me is IT, finance, you know, engineering, payroll processing, payment processing. That's confusing, right? Yeah. So for someone like you, interviewing is hard because you can get the depth and training around that. For me, I'm like, no, that's the easy part. So I think what companies have to figure out is what are the core things that you need to become operationally world-class at? How do you grow your people so they're operationally world-class at those things? How do you plug in the stuff that maybe you're not great at, but maybe somebody else is? I'll give you an example of something I use all the time. This is an iPhone, right? Who makes it? 
I know this game. You know this game, right? <laughs> Apple makes it. Right. Apple doesn't make it. Right. Right. Apple designs it. Right. Apple outsources the manufacturing of it because they suck at manufacturing. Yes. And then they actually do the sales and marketing of it. Yes. But they found the areas that they're operationally or world-class on, design, sales, and marketing, and they outsource everything except genius. And I think so often companies are trying to, to be good at everything or they haven't identified what to be good at. Yeah. So let's go back to the part of the question, though, is, is around culture and core values. When you're looking for good I people, want to add to that real quick because yeah. I think that it's actually a really good case study. So it's like it's a fun uh, and I think eye-opening uh, independent comment. But when you look at Apple systemically over the course of decades, they weave in and out of this. So they, in a lot of different ways, but they're chips. They made all their own silicon for years. Yep, for years. And then they said, you know what? Intel yep. is better at this. Yep. Gave it to Intel. Then they said, you know what? It's time for us to go do it again. And what they produce is fucking world class. Mm-hmm. The M1 chips are better than anything better. else that's being produced. Yep. And so now they're back there. But I love that this the narrative of know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and be ready to bring people on. And then also just like also identify what do we have to get good at. So here's what scares me about most companies. Like 99% of companies have managers in place that interview and hire people. Okay, 99% of companies have managers in place that interview and hire people. And almost all of those managers have never been trained on how to do a job interview. Right? How much training, how many hours worth of training have you had on doing interviews? Very little. How many? Roughly. Oh, man. Real pure hours of training no. around interviewing. I mean, none. Right. Self-taught, self-learned. Right. So yeah. I've like, had a lot, a lot, a lot of hours doing it. Doing it, right. Yeah. But, but, but it's like a fall on my face kind of thing. I've had a lot of hours doing shit too. And then I get trained in something and it gets so much easier, right? Yeah. I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of training, role-playing, practicing, people watching my interviews over video, back in the VHS tapes. I actually had a VHS. I wish I still had it. I'm interviewing Kimball Musk. And Wait, that interview... VH. Yeah. So yeah, if you go back to what, what, what hiring is about, it's hiring around two things, the core values and cultural fit of the person mm-hmm. and the skill set at doing what you need them to do. Now in the, in the old days, people used to say hire for attitude, train for skill, right? Or basically hire for core values, fit culture fit mm-hmm. and train the skill. Mm-hmm. That's okay. If you want seven to 10% growth a year, mm. if you want hyper growth, which I'm used to doing hundred percent growth year after year, you have to hire for the core values, culture fit, and the proven skill set so they can hit the ground running. So what you have to be able to identify then is how do I find the core values traits? How do I find the behavioral traits? How do I interview to prove that they have them? And then how do I actually find the skill sets? So let me walk you through some of the basics. Please. For every role, you come up with five core behavioral traits that that role needs to happen. And it's different role to role. I'll give you an exact example. There's no single salesperson that will ever make it through an HR screening process because HR people hate salespeople. Salespeople are winging it. They shoot from the hip. They make it up on the go. They're gregarious. They're high energy, right? They're driven. I know some of those. And now HR people follow the processes, follow procedures. They like rules. They dot their I's and cross the T's. Salespeople are like, fuck that. There aren't any rules to follow because I need to make it up on the fly. So you need to identify... What are the traits of each type of a role? At College Pro Painters, as an example, we looked for leadership, attainment, tenacity, introspection, and interdependence. Those were the five core traits. 
Leadership is clear, right? They had to be strong leaders. Now, when you're hiring 20-year-olds, when I hired Kimball Musk, he was 21 years old. He was already a leader. He'd been a leader his whole life. Now, he hadn't necessarily managed teams of people, but he had all these leadership things that he'd done in his life. Attainment was the goal orientation, someone driving towards goals. That's exhibited at four years old, eight years old, 10 years old. You can see the traits. People don't lose those traits. Tenacity was the dog-like work ethic to get over, under, around any obstacle put in one's path. Now, I just said something interesting there. I gave you a direct quote for how we defined tenacity Mm -hmm. 27 years ago. Mm. It was so ingrained that we all had the same definition for each of the five traits. Yeah. Interdependence was somebody who was in or was dependent on the system. So we gave you the franchise system, you'd follow it. And if it wasn't there, you'd be in, independent enough to make it up on the go. Yeah. Right. So we knew what we were looking for. We knew how to define it. And then for each trait, we had five questions to start the interview process around. Mm. Okay. That was the starting point. Then we would rate people on a bell curve of one through five. Pause for a second. Yeah. Uh, five questions. Yeah. The, were the questions around uncovering whether or not they had the traits? Yes. It was how to rate them on the traits. So for Got leadership, it. it would be a question would be, tell me when you, um, you know, when you were a kid, who would organize all the kids to go out and play? Um, did you have any roles, you know, in, when you were in Cubs or Scouts or on hockey team? Who were the captains? Who were the assistants? Oh, you're on student government. Were you appointed? Were you elected? Did you campaign? Who, who voted for you? So we learned how to find those things. Hmm. And then based on what we found, we would rate the candidates. So of the, let's say of the 10 candidates we were interviewing, four of them, 40% could be given a three out of five. 20% or two could be given a two out of five. 20% could be given a four out of five. 10% could be given a one out of five. 10% could be given a five out of five. We just use a bell curve to say where they fit. Because not everybody can be a 10 out of 10 or a 5 out of 5. Not everybody can be a 3. There has to be some reasonable distribution. So we forced the candidates into that distribution. And then we could have a debate. If you and I were both interviewing Bob, we could sit down and compare our notes. And I'd be like, well, you gave him a 4. I gave him a 3. Why? We would end up deciding, okay, it's probably a 3 or whatever. But we had that methodology in place. A very simple system that everybody followed to rate people against those traits. That's how we found the core value side of things or the culture side of things. Mm. Then you flip from that into the skill set. You list out the core five things the person has to do in their job and have they done it before. Let's say I was hiring a swimmer. It's a weird example, but if you work with me on it, if I needed to have a strong swimmer, do I want somebody who knows how to break world records, who knows how to win gold, who knows how to do all four strokes? I do. I know how to win gold, swim faster. (laughs) <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I know how to do all four strokes. I mean, I would drown doing the butterfly, but I know how to do it. <laughs> or do you want someone who won a world record, yeah. who, you know, who won gold and who competed at all four strokes in individual and team? Mm-hmm. Who are you going to end up with? You end up with true A players. But because most companies don't know how to interview, they don't know how to, to hire, they don't even know where to go and get the proper candidates for, and they say they have A players, probably not. They probably have B minuses to C plus players who they think are A's because they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know how to find it. Mm. So I had a CEO one time. I coached them from 40 employees up to 700 people. And Bobby said to me, um, I need about 30 days to 90 days to know if the person I hired is the right person after they start. And I said, Bobby, that's because you suck at interviewing. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, if you know how to interview properly, you know everything about the candidate before they come. But if you spend all your time talking about how great your company is, 
and you don't know how to dig and what to dig for and how to probe and how to use open questions and closed questions and the pregnant pause, and you don't know how to look at the gaps. If you don't know how to interview, then of course it's kind of a crapshoot. But when interviewing is such a core part or hiring people is such a core part of building a company, why don't we spend time doing it? Why are people all trying to learn about social media or marketing or sales, all important things. But when you're hiring people, that should be a core competency inside of every organization. I love that. And uh, I'm now embarrassed and want to go cry in the corner because I clearly don't want to interview people. No, but you're, you're, <laughs> you're, okay. no, but seriously, uh, I when you said, I knew where you were going with it. You, sure. When you mentioned your friend that said, I need 30 to 90 days. I absolutely verbatim have said something like that. I heard it. I heard it yesterday on a podcast again. And I cringe every time I hear it. And I absolutely also agree with you. The question is, uh, where do you learn it? So I, I could pitch my stuff, but sure. I'll, give you, I'll give you some other areas where you can go learn it. So where I learned it was understanding that adults learn differently. So adults learn from learning a concept. You could read the book Who by Brad Smart, or you could read his dad's, or sorry, Jeff Smart, or you could read his dad's book, Top Grading, Jeff Smart, Brad Smart. And you could get a consultant to come in and teach you. You could do one of the modules in my Investing Your Leaders course on interviewing and learn it. That's the concept. You're learning the abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Then learning changes gears and you go into practicing, right? The role play. That's called the active experimentation stage of learning. So you're practicing it. You're trying out in your business. You're trying it out over video. You're getting feedback from a coach. You get that loop starting. And then you learn by doing, which most entrepreneurs have learned interviewing from doing. That's the concrete experience stage. And then the last stage, the fourth stage is reflective observation. But most entrepreneurs don't go back and say, what went well in the interview? What didn't go well? What can I do better? What can I change? They don't get their video recorded so that somebody can give them feedback. And they don't restart the loop again by reading and watching and learning more about interviewing and then practicing. So the loop continues until you build competence from a bronze, silver, or gold level, right? If you think about a competence in a skill, your skill in interviewing goes from no skill to high skill, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's how I approach stuff. So you would read a book, you would watch some videos, you might watch some TED Talks, you might sign up for my Invest in Your Leaders course and watch that one module. You might read the section on hiring from Double Double. You might read a, a, a chapter on hiring out of um, Traction by Gino Wickman. You might um, get some employees to come in and teach it. You might turn to some of the role model companies in your, in your city and, and get their teams to come and mentor you. All of those are just part of the learning cycle. Well, and what were the four stages of the learning cycle you just brought up? So abstract conceptualization, mm-hmm. AC, active experimentation, AE, concrete experience, CE, and reflective observation, RO. I also talk about that in one of the modules, Invest in Your Leaders, in the classroom teaching module. When you're teaching students, you need to cover those four stages and make sure that you cover the auditory, um, visual, and kinesthetic style of learners. So you need to hit people the way they learn. And remember, there's a cycle with learning. Because if I teach you something right now, you might retain most of it. But if all of a sudden you have an employee who you've just fired, and I come back to you and I say, hey, do you want to talk about what you saw in the interview when you interviewed them six months ago? And you'd be like, oh, shit, not really. That's where some of, <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's where some of the learning will come in is how totally. did you miss that? Totally. Or what did you not look for? Or, you know, one of my favorite questions when somebody fires somebody is, how did the reference checks go before you hired them? And they go, oh, yeah, we didn't do them. I'm like, well, then it's your fucking fault. Like, there's nothing wrong with the employee the day you fire them. It's the same person. We just didn't have the right system or process in place. And I get it because it's hard and it's confusing. 
But when you learn the basics, and, and what I like about if you find the right coach or the right mentor, or you follow the right resources, I like dumbing my resources down. I don't want this to be an MBA program on interviewing, right? I need to give you the basics to get you to bronze or silver. Most people don't need to get to gold, but currently they're at zero. Let's at least get you to bronze or silver on interviewing. Right, way better than where we are today. So uh, the, those four cycles, I think, are tremendously valuable from not only the um, reflection of how well a CEO or COO does in the hiring process, but also certainly training and onboarding, right? And, and your entire staff. And in every area of our business, right? Let's talk about running meetings, right? How many of our managers run meetings? All of them. Right? They either have phone calls, which are meetings, they run Zoom calls, which are meetings, or they have in-person meetings. Yeah. But have we trained our managers on how to run a meeting? So, nope. nope. I want to drill into that because <laughs> I know that meetings suck. Yeah. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to stick in hiring because, yeah. um, look, either of these things, they're so fundamental to building a team Yeah. that um, it makes a ton of sense to spend a lot of time digging into them. Uh, I look at hiring, and I'm sure that this is adopted from one of the, the texts that you just mentioned, traction or um, the like. But I look at hiring in terms of sourcing, screening, selling, which is really the hiring part. It's like, hey, I found out this is the person I want. How do I indoctrinate them in my company? Yep. And then the onboarding process. So here's something about selling, which is really intriguing. If you want to recruit A players into your companies, you have to reverse the sales process. So I call it the reverse sell. Because the more I sell an A player on joining me and how great my company is or where I'm going, it scares them away. So what I do is I reverse the sell and I get them to sell me on why they think they're a great fit. I get them to sell me. So what I do is I use the vivid vision process to show them where we're going. And then I ask them, what are you most excited about? Instead of me telling them what's exciting, I get them to tell me. But the more that, and we learned this in the franchising world. If I'm trying to pitch you on buying my franchise, you're going to run away. So you're right in selling. But there's an art to actually selling. So let me clarify, leaders. Yeah. So let me clarify a couple of things on that. So uh, one, we've been talking about screening, yeah. right? We've been talking about the process of taking the candidates that you're sitting with, the interview process, yeah. and going through that. Um, I want to talk about sourcing a little bit yeah. in terms of how you even get the people to the sure. table, and then I want to talk about the back end of that, which is hey, I know that this is the person, the job offer side. You got it. Okay. And then hey, and then we've got the onboarding, which yeah. is super interesting, but. Where are you on screening? And by the way, what you're showing is the life cycle of the startup of the employee. And companies need to identify this and then make sure they have the systems in place for each stage. So on the sourcing or the recruiting, I call it the recruiting side. The first thing I do is create a job posting that is a lot of clarity on what the job stands for. And I make it sound like a scary, real fucking tough job to come for, which turns away the C players and is only going to have the A's and B's wanting to apply. I then have a copywriter take the job posting and polish it so the job posting looks like a sales ad, mm -hmm. right? Most times we just write the job posting ourselves, or the head of an area writes the job posting. But if you then hand it to a copywriter and they can polish it, it really attracts the right people in. Third thing I do is I pay at about 85th percentile of the bell curve. So I take the common roles in the city that I'm in. And now our cities are competing globally. Mm -hmm. right? We're competing against the Bay Area, even though we're in Austin or Ohio. So we have to make sure that we're paying about 80, 85th percent of the bell curve. And I put the compensation right at the very top of the job posting. I make it crystal clear. So if they're, if they and don't want to. When you say 85% of the bell curve, they can, saying, let's say I'm paying. If the average salary nationwide is $78,000 yep. and the top end, the highest is 
110, yeah. you're probably going to be in the 105 range. I'll be in the, one, exactly, the 105 range. But I want to make sure that they see that and go, oh, I want that job. And I make the job posting sound so tough that the C players don't even apply. And only the A's and B's are even thinking about it. And then I have a copywriter polish it. So now they're going, wow, this is really fucking good. And then in addition to the 105, they get five weeks paid vacation, including their sick days. And that stands out over everything else in the marketplace because so many companies still only pay two or three weeks. It costs us nothing to give a little bit more vacation time. And if we recruit the A players, vacations are good, especially if we teach them how to take vacation and spread it out over the year. So I'm using that as bait. I'm using that as decoys to bring them into my company. The other thing I'm doing on the recruiting or sourcing side is I share the vivid vision on the website, in the job posting, with all the candidates. I make them read the vivid vision and tell me where they think they can make it come true and what they're excited about. So when resumes start coming in, I don't read any of the resumes. An auto reply goes back right away saying, thanks for your resume. I'm not reading it yet. Please read our vivid vision and this recent article of us in the media. If this sounds like the kind of company you want to help fly to the moon, please reply with a two to three minute video of why you want to work with us and what you love about our vivid vision. Based on your video, we'll decide if you're bringing you in for a group interview. So we've all of a sudden reversed the cell right away. I don't waste any of my operational time reading 100 resumes for 10, only 10 people that are really interested. What tends to happen is you'll get 10 or 15 great resumes coming back in the door with the videos. I'll watch the videos and I will then only bring the qualified people or the people I like culturally, the people who are already pre-sold a little bit based on the vivid vision. I'll bring them into the interview process. So, I, okay. So it's a marketing and sales game on the front end, right? On the, the front end. Yeah. And I love that. The, one of my questions that I have with that for you is, does that vary by role? So does the screening process and the mechanism change when you're talking about a $300,000 a year um, executive that you're pulling in versus a $50,000 a year uh, entry-level sure. salesperson or entry-level person? So here's what doesn't change. The, the having a professional copywriter polish it doesn't change, right? Probably even mm-hmm. more impo- important. Mm-hmm. Um, really making sure the culture stands out because the seasoned executives still want to know that they want to come work for an amazing company, right? The five weeks vacation shouldn't change because most, most seasons executives, five weeks vacation is probably their benchmark. And it's nice to push that right in front of them as well. Making sure that the actual job posting is written in such a way that it kind of scares them. That raises the bar, man. $300,000 people love that shit because they mm-hmm. want to work for a top company. They want to work for a challenge. They don't want to work for some fluffy thing. The video submission afterwards, if they're not really willing to submit on a video submission, I'm not sure they're going to like the rest of the rules we have in our company, the rest of the normal policies. But outside of that, not much is really going to change. What may change at the group interview process that we haven't talked about is having six to eight candidates mm-hmm. on a Zoom call or in person at the same time. That can change when you're hiring people that are working for publicly traded companies and they hold proprietary non-public information. So these are like CFOs of public companies. Then you can tend to not be doing a group interview because they can't really put their jobs at risk mm-hmm. or, or people knowing that they're out looking. Um, but other than that, no, not much changes. Got it. So you mandate the initial hoop of send me a video. Because I'm looking for culture first. And then based on now, I've got five or six great candidates based on the cultural survey, the video, they've gone through the hoop, they give a shit, they've read our vivid vision. Oh, now I'm really going to spend time reading every fucking word of your resume. I'm going to make notes on your resume. I'm going to prep for what the interview is going to be like. And I'm going to do three grilling interviews with you. 
And by the time I get to torque or the thread of reference check at the end, I know more about you than you know about you. But if I don't know about their culture soon, then I'm spending time interviewing people who aren't really the right culture fit. And I'm starting to sell myself on, well, maybe they'll fit. No, they won't. They, they won't fit. They'll be really strong people who might fit a different company. Mm-hmm. But what you're looking for are the energy and you feel that energy and you can see that in the video submission. Mm-hmm. And what's nice about it is your team, especially HR, because HR would love to read all hundred resumes, <laughs> right? I don't want them reading it. I want them going yeah. and finding more resumes. I want them going and doing more recruiting. So I'll give you a silver bullet that I get all my client. I haven't told this, this system very much at all. So this is based on the research from top grading, Jeff Smart and Brad Smart, who I'm friends with both the father and son. They're used, their systems are used by the best companies on the planet, the biggest of the best companies on the planet on interviewing. So let's say you're hiring. Well, give me a role. Who are you hiring right now? What kind of a role? Yeah, so, so many things. No, pick, pick a good, important role. That you're VP hiring. of sales. Okay. VP of sales. Great, yeah. great one. What's the compensation of that VP of sales going to be kind of all in over the first year? Two, two, two fit. Perfect. So $250,000. What I'm going to do is put an internal recruiting bonus in place for any of your current employees who recruit or who give me the name of somebody who I can reach out to. If that person gets hired, they're going to get a $125,000 bonus. But here's how it's paid out. I'm going to pay half the person's comp as a bonus paid out in five installments at the end of month 12, month 24, month 36, month 48, month 60, provided both people are still with the company. Hmm. So let's say Kelly finds some VP through her old company or she posts stuff on social media and her LinkedIn and Facebook for me and gets us a qualified candidate and Bob gets hired. Kelly's going to get 25 grand at the end of year one, 25 more at the end of year two. So Kelly's not going to quit. Kelly's going to make sure that Bob stays until the end of year one and year two. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a bit of a retention bonus. Yeah. It's a meaningful amount of money. Yeah. Because it's spread over five years, it's actually not really 125 grand. And the reality is if Bob came in at 250 and asked for 275, you'd probably give it to him anyway. Yeah. Now you're just giving the 25 to Kelly. And because she's now making 25 grand a year more or five grand, 10 grand, she's not coming in and asking for raises anymore. Mm. It's a really, really powerful recruiting system that helps you build out based on the culture you've got and A players hang out with A players. I use that system to go out and hire five of the more senior people from IntraWest, the group that oversaw Whistler Blackcomb. When Whistler was acquired by a hedge fund, Fortress, I use that system to hire five people within six weeks. I like that. I've heard different permutations of that, but uh, in general, I like most that. of the permutations are a thousand dollars, pay five hundred upfront. Not meaningful. Yeah, it's when it's a real amount of like twenty five grand. Fuck, I'd do it. Yeah, right. You do do it. I, I do do it. Yeah, I, I definitely do. You. you give me twenty five grand a year for five years, I'll find your VP of sales. Hey, man, uh, book in a box. Told you they'd give you a Tesla if you. Yeah. Gave them enough clients. Now, in fairness, I'm their, I'm their number one referral source. Lewis House is number two. And somebody else is chasing me right now. <laughs> he runs like a... Which is now Scribe, for clarity. It's now Scribe, yeah, yeah. Mutual friends. Yeah. Uh, and you were an advisor to them also. Yes, and right? I have an equity position in the company. Yes. Uh, but those incentives matter. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's brilliant. And, um, and I, I like the way that it uh, loops in other initiatives as well, namely longevity. And the reason it's so critical to get the hiring, so as you pointed out, the sourcing or recruiting, the interviewing and hiring, the onboarding, the leadership development, the reason it's so important to get that whole life cycle employee figured out, it drops your attrition, it drops your training costs, it drops the pain in the ass factor, right? It drops your sick days. It's just fucking easier when you have really great people and then they stay 
and they grow, business gets simple. We really overcomplicate business as humans. Um, I, we overcomplicate everything as humans. Life. Um, so, okay, I've got the recruiting, which I call sourcing. I've got screening, the hiring process that we talked about. I have this little widget in there called selling, which yep. is, hey, um, I know that I want this person. How do I make the job offer to them? Yeah. So the sales process starts in the actual interview process. So mm -hmm. before you want to make the offer, sales has already been starting. Mm -hmm. So the sales starts with them reading your vivid vision, the four or five page description of your company in the future, right? The sales process starts by getting them to tell you why they love your vivid vision and why they can help it make it come true. They're now selling themselves on being inside the company. 20% mm -hmm. of the first interview is selling. It's reversing the sale. It's, it's, it's asking them tougher questions, raising the bar, saying, look, this is going to be the toughest fucking thing I think you've ever done. I'm not sure you're going to be good at it. Like, why do you think I'm wrong? It's asking those kind of questions in an Aji shucks way. It gets the candidates selling themselves into the role, right? When you go to the second interview, it's 50% interviewing, 50% selling, but again, reversing the sell. And then when you're into the torque side, the thread of reference check, the A candidates, I haven't even explained how that works yet, but the A candidates are working so hard to sell you that they're in by the time you make the offer, right? I used to have a joke back in the college pro painters days but I could put a pen and a piece of paper down in front of them, their contract to sign, and they'd be reaching for the pen and I'd pick it up before them and they'd be itching to grab the paper, right? So by the time you make the offer, you already know they're pre-sold. That it's not even about trying to sell them anymore because you've built that into your system. So you're right that there's sales, but I think it has to come throughout, throughout the process. Then the way I make the offer, and I've always done it the same way. Brad, I got some good news and some bad news. Which would you like first? And whichever way they go, the bad news is this is going to be the hardest fucking thing you've ever done. The good news is, congratulations, you're going to be working with us. I don't even offer. I just say, congratulations, you're in. Mm. And I kind of play the game. And I do that with like $300,000 people or $50,000 people. I like it. It's funny because uh, I think that most people view hiring as an isolated behavior uh, in their ecosystem. And the reality is that it's another sales funnel. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely a sales funnel. So I actually have a simple little spreadsheet. Everything, all my systems are simple. So if you're hiring one person, you need to have 1.1 offers because 10% of the people reject, right? You make the offer and somehow you didn't get them or their boss paid them more money and they're staying. So you need to have a few more offers per person being hired. Let's say you're hiring four people. You need to have five offers because one will reject to end up with five. Of the five offers, you need to actually, let's say one person being offered now. You need to have two people going through reference checks because torque or the reference checks won't play out. Of those two, you probably needed to do four second interviews to know which two to offer to or which two to do reference checks with. Of the four that you're doing second interviews with, you needed to do 12 or eight first interviews. Of the first interviews, it's the group interview. The group interview is the video submission. Video submission is or is resumes coming in the door. So now you know you need 100 resumes to end up with 20 videos, to end up with eight group interviews, to have four people coming through to a first, second, you follow? Mm -hmm. Very same sales process. Yeah. And uh, so what I do is I engage the HR's team is to get me resumes of qualified people. And then the manager's job is to get them through to a second interview. And leadership's job is to make sure that people know how to run each stage of the process. It's interesting to me because I uh, that, that shift in mentality for me happened a year or two ago. Where I thought, oh, this is a uh, there's a direct comparison to all sales and marketing efforts. Yeah. Um, still, I still treated it a little differently, but I think that going through this with you has been helpful from the perspective of 
um, just exactly how parallel they are. Uh, so let's talk about... Well, yeah, and you know, sorry, one other way they're parallel, let's say that you need to have six orders in sales on Monday. Are you going to start selling on Friday? No, you're going to start selling six weeks before or three months before to get the leads, to have the mm. first meetings, the second meetings, the offers, right? So your funnel has to start way before the hiring. Now, here's what happens in interviewing and where a lot of companies go sideways. Let's say I need five more customer service people to be there May 1st. Should I start April 1st, March 1st? Probably March 1st, maybe February 1st, you're going to start your recruiting. Now, those five salespeople that you want to start May 1, don't you really want them to be fully trained May 1? Mm -hmm. Which means you probably want them starting April 1 so they go through your training process and your onboarding process to actually be reasonably up to speed. But if you really want to kick it, you're hiring March 15th because they need to give two weeks notice to quit their prior job, right? So you really have to be strategic about the hiring cycle. That's what we were operationally, again, world-class at at College Pro because if we missed two weeks, we only had 17 weeks to run 100% of our revenue. Yeah. Well, and college kids are going to get a different job. And, and we only ran four months. Right. We, we did, if we missed two weeks, we were missing 7% per week because we only operated in four months of the year. We got 100% of our revenue in four months, 0% for the next eight. Yeah. We couldn't be off by two weeks. Yeah. Well, okay. So I have to hit on this then because the back to the sourcing consideration, we're, you know, in 2022, February. Yeah. Uh, we have a different ecosystem for hiring mm -hmm. and it is across the fucking board. Every entrepreneur I talk to way harder, way harder, way harder to source people. And yeah. uh, firsthand, I mean, our, you know, we went from getting, um, a hundred or 200 or 300 applications for a given position to like 12. Yep. I, right. I spoke to an entrepreneur just yesterday. She's based in Ohio and I'm not going to use her name cause you know them. Um, <laughs> And a great entrepreneur, really good, successful company. So she's looking to hire two people in her warehouse at 13 to 14.50 an hour. And I said, first off, that's a shitty wage. No one can live on it. And you're way under market. She goes, no, that's what everybody in the market's paying. I'm so you're not competing against everybody in the market. You're competing against all other companies around you now. And I went out to another client of mine who has warehouse staff. And my gut was he was paying at least 30 to 40% more. So I said, Tyler, what are you paying your warehouse staff? 18 to 19 bucks an hour. I went back to her, I go, I told you, like you're way underpaying. You need to be paying thirty-six to forty thousand dollars a year, where three years ago you were paying twenty-five. Mm -hmm. So what's happened is compensation because of inflation has gone up substantially just over the last two or three years. Where compens really gone up though now is the world is extraordinarily flat. So now we have the entire Bay Area is willing to hire people remote. Where mm -hmm. Google and eBay and PayPal used to have to go into an office. Now they're like, fuck it. You can be in Minnesota if you want to. Yeah. One of my clients in Ohio, another client of mine, just lost an employee to a company based in Luxembourg. Most people don't even know where Luxembourg is. Yep. But a company based in Europe just hired somebody in Ohio. They don't need them to come to an office. So any roles that are non like show up in a specific place, you're competing against all companies. So you have to pay more. Your company has to be better. Your culture has to be better. Your website has to be better. You're marketing in a way now that you're competing against everybody else. Mm. Okay, so that's good uh, because it addresses a couple of things. I think what the question I asked was, I don't know if I asked this explicitly, but um, how do you get more candidates, right? Which How do you change the sourcing process? And your answer really was, you don't change the sourcing process. Your answer was, you market better. You build a better company. You build and, a better and company market, and, 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 and you make a better offer yep. to the people. Yep. And that's the starting point. 
Also, it's I offer, know it's offer and decoys. I keep bringing up decoys because one of my grandfathers decoy ran a hunting and fishing resort. Uh, so we put wood decoys out into the water of ducks to attract the ducks into our blind. So he taught me about using decoys to attract people in. Mm-hmm. And we, we would talk about it in the business world. What are the things that we put out into the world to attract people to our business? Right. I imagine, do you have a leadership team page or an about us page on your website where Mm -hmm. it shows your leadership team page? Mm -hmm. So your leadership team bios should read more like a Tinder profile than a government bio, Mm -hmm. right? Because all the candidates are reading that. So anybody who's listening, if you're a leadership team and you're about us reads like a government bio, you're turning people away, Mm -hmm. right? So we have to think about how do we market ourselves? How do we put our company out? What's our website look like? What are the photos of our team like? What's our vivid vision like? How much press are we generating? And really putting those decoys out into the outside world to attract people in. We need to pay the right amount of money. We need to overpay a little bit more. Yes, we can demand more of our people once we've got them. But we need to actually raise that bar in all those areas. We need to fire the assholes. We need to get rid of the C players because those are decoys as well. So it's all around that. I love that. From a tactical perspective, so that answers actually quite a bit of it. From a tactical perspective, uh, what are the locations for uh, or mechanisms for sourcing right now? One is that bonus, right? That that crazy bonus that sounds... internal. Yeah, internal yep. recruiting, A players attract A players. Mm-hmm. Another one is putting a bonus similar to that in place for your suppliers and your customers, mm. where you pay them an amount of money over the next number. So you use your pool of people that already love your company. You turn all of those raving fans into recruiters, and you make it easy for them to share. Clickable, trackable links, right? Anything you can do to actually turn those people into raving fans and recruiting is huge. Um, recruiters hate them and, and love them at the same time, but using a really good solid recruiters who are proven in spaces. So I have, I have four recruiters that I recruit, refer tons and tons of people to, but they're all based on different niches or different sizes of business that they work with. Um, and finding recruiters that aren't just, re- that aren't just retained. There's kind of a hybrid between a, a small retainer and some contingency. So they're going to work hard for you, but you're not just putting all your money and all your trust in them. That's important. Let's talk about that for a second because recruiters are, I hate them and I love them. <laughs> there we go. I, I'll, I'll keep my own words to myself. Um, well, it's like lawyers. I hate lawyers and at times you need them too. Yep. Right? I, I feel the same way about uh, real estate agents. Yeah. Accountants. Yeah. Real estate agents. Yeah. Um, a lot of them really give very little value. Yep. Um, but the select few that are very good. So, Let's talk about the different recruiting options in terms of who you hire. You mentioned retainers versus comp. So, yeah, here's the, here's the overarching rule to work with, with any of these kinds of people. Your process that you have for your company has to be used by that executive search firm. Mm. So most executive search firms will say, no, no, we'll send you the final three candidates. Pick one. I'm like, fuck you. You're going to send me the final 10. I'm going to put them through my process. Oh, no, we've already done. No, you're not. We'll do the reference checks for you. No, you won't. You're going to bring me good, solid people, and I'm going to do all that work. Your job is to find me the pool. My job is to get them through the process. So they'll hate that. But if you're good and you understand the recruiting and interviewing and torque process, they'll respect that. right? And if you pay them fairly and they know, wow, I don't have to do all that grunt work. But what most companies fail on is... They either don't get the right recruiter, you know, they have somebody who specializes in tech and you're looking for marketing, or they have somebody who specializes in marketing and you want marketing, but they specialize in in-person roles. You know, like they don't think it through clearly. And, and it's almost doing 
an interview of those recruiters to find out which one is the right fit for you culturally too. Don't mm-hmm. just take the referral because, oh, Brad said or Cameron said or Kelly said, use them. Interview the recruiter. Get yeah. to know them. Get to know their team. Get to know their people. Get to know their process. Like, is it really a fit for you? Tell them how you want them to run through your process and make them really understand. Don't just take the first lead that comes across as your recruiter. That, that's my kind of how to find the right one. Mm, man. God, these uh, parallels run deep here, right? So I think uh, it's the same process, right? It's that you still need to, if you're looking for recruiters, there's still the funnel to find the recruiter and it might be smaller, yeah. but there's still the same process. And I think one of the challenges that business owners have in general is this, and there's good reason for it. Relationships drive everything else in business. Yep. So people often default to leaning into a trusted relationship right. and then they forego the necessary screening uh, to make sure that the referral actually makes sense. One of my biggest pet peeves, especially on social media, I'll give you an example. I need a coach to help me grow my company. Who should I use? And then 17 people give you a name of somebody to coach you. None of those people should be telling you who should coach you because you haven't told them what you want coaching in. Mm. Do you want soft skills coaching? Do you want confidence coaching? Do you want coaching around situational leadership or operations? I would be a shitty coach around soft skills. I would be a shitty coach around confidence. I would be a shitty coach around finance or IT or engineering. I would be a shitty coach if you're a startup, right? But if you're in the $5 million to $50 million rate, I'm world-class. World-class. And I've coached so many... If you want, So it's dangerous to just take that... For, and, and most people want to help. So we want to tell you who to use because we're trying to help you. Sure. But we don't necessarily know enough to help. The onus is on the receiver. The person who's receiving the referral or receiving the help, the, the, the responsibility is on you to ask for the right thing so you get pointed in the right direction. I want to say something because often I'm interviewed and I've done speaking all over the world and I can leave audiences a little bit scared and overwhelmed and, and feeling like, oh, fuck, I'm fucking everything up. That's okay, right? This is supposed to be to create a gap so the learner controls the environment. Until a student is ready to learn, they don't learn. Whether you're eight years old and you're like, I don't care, I don't care. If all of a sudden you understand why you're learning what you're learning, it'll help you. If, if only what you get out of today is, wow, I could improve on these areas. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Don't try to get as good as I'm at at this because I'm nowhere near as good as anybody listening at something they're great at. Yeah. Right. This just happens to be the zone that of, of my genes. I like that. And I, you know, I also, one of the things that I, uh, routinely try to reinforce my staff is, People feel bad when they invest a lot of time and energy in something and it doesn't work out. Right. And the reframe for that is when you invest a lot of time and energy in something and it doesn't work out, that's fantastic because you put energy into trying to figure it out. And the lesson that you get out of that because of the time and energy, that's where the value is. Especially if you go back to that cycle of learning, right? What's the reflective observation? What can I learn right. by reflecting on what, what did I do well that got me to there? What did I do poorly that got me to there? What can I continue? What should I improve on? Then it's worth it. But if you don't learn and you just go back and try it again, then that's bad. <laughs> yeah, I have a uh, something I tell people routinely, which is uh, I want an environment where it's okay to make mistakes, but it's not okay if you don't learn from them. Yeah, that summarizes it, right? If you if you don't take time. To look at it and you just keep making the same fucking mistake. What are we doing? That's crazy. 
it's crazy and it's also tremendously frustrating for everybody around you, right? And it should be frustrating for yourself as well. So that comment ties into, and again, I didn't want to be talking about my course, this, this investing your leaders. Sure you did. No, I didn't. So, <laughs> but it goes back. So my belief is we talked about this in Antarctica is the leader's job. The CEO's job is to be at the bottom of the org chart. Yes. Right? When I spoke down there, I said, we're at the bottom of the planet. Yes. Our job is to be at the bottom. Now the CEO's job is to grow people. Yes. To grow their confidence and grow their skills. So if you identify that one area that your people need to be better at is interviewing, train them. Don't, don't get upset with it. Train them. Train them in meetings. Train them in coaching. Train them in one-on-one meetings. Train them on, on email management. Train them on project management. Train them on delegation. But give your team the skills to do the day-to-day jobs that they have to do. Because what we often do is we jump over that and we teach them about the part of the company they're working in, but we don't treat them how to actually have the executive functioning skills. That's where Apple was strong. That's where General Electric was strong. That's where Xerox was strong. That's where Starbucks is strong. College Pro Painters was strong. We trained our people on how to actually lead and grow companies, not on how to paint. Yeah. I had way less hours on how to paint houses than on how to run a painting company. Mm. I love it. All right. So this is a really... Uh, selfish question, but I also think it's probably pretty valuable to a lot of people. Our target market are people that are already established that are there. But, you know, we have um, everything from the, the solopreneur that's doing a couple million a year, well, uh, one person, right, to the person that has several hundred people on their team doing 100 million or 150 or a few hundred million a year. When you're new, uh, my belief is that it makes very little sense to spend a whole bunch of time and energy on these ethereal concepts that will probably serve you later before you even know if you have a business. So at what point in the business, at what point, um, and is it, you know, a million, is it 10 million, is it 50? Do you look at that and say, Hey, we need to go back and make sure that we have leadership strategy in place. And then I'm training on leadership. Is that day one? Is that as soon as you are, Proof of concept? Is it's, it? It's. I'll give you an example. Size of team, size of revenue. No, it, it can be both. And I'll give you an example of because I know where, where you were going with this. So the CEO's job or the entrepreneur's job is to get the highest return on three things. Our people, our time, and our money. Okay, so you only have those three inputs. That's all we have in our business. People, time, and money. And then what's the highest return on investment of those three things? Now, is it in your best interest to go out and build a leadership training program internally for all these modules? No, it would take you hundreds of hours to pull together, right? Now, if you could plug in four of your managers into my course at $700 each for $2,800, it's a five-minute decision, and then they do four hours each and they learn the skills, that's a pretty fucking high return on $700 per person. It takes you no time at all. It takes them four hours each and they get a lot of skills. That's almost irresponsible not to do it. It's very irresponsible for most companies, less than 200 people to develop an internal training curriculum. When I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, one of my seven business areas that I ran was a a learning department. I had six full-time people building out learning learning programs for all of our franchisees and drivers and navigators. Okay, so let me ask you something on that. But Uh, to plug somebody in or to hire a consultant or say read a book, that's where you want to do that early. Grow your people early and then you can focus on your unique ability. Mm. Okay. It takes you no time to go buy the book Top Grading and have your three managers read it. What was the investment? 80 bucks? Do you have to do it first? Who? Um, no. The CEO. The, the, CEO, the CEO has to know what has to happen. 
The team needs to know how to do it. So you should go through the Invest in Your Leaders course, four hours, five hours is all it's going to take you to do all 12 modules, just to know what it's about and go, fuck, there's so much stuff that we don't know. Right. You guys get good at this. I get that, but let's extrapolate, right? So yeah. we've got, you know, uh, Cameron Harold, the COO Whisper, mm -hmm. that has the Invest in Your Leaders course. Yep. That's how we learn yep. operations, right? Then I've got sales, I've got marketing, yep. I've got finance, I've got technology stuff. You should get exposed to those. You should, so, so like I'm plugged into three different mastermind and groups. And do I then, as the CEO, as the entrepreneur, is the expectation, look, I found what I think is a great course, but it's 15 hours of content around building a sales platform. Is your uh, suggestion hypothesis that the CEO should spend the 15 hours on that to learn that before hiring and bringing in the, the salesperson to do it? I think... The CEO's job is to have a cursory understanding, just a, an overview of it to then know if we can't learn it. So a great example would be, I'll never learn engineering or IT enough to have a cursory understanding of programming, right? Mm -hmm. And how to build up. Now I ran the product development team at 1-800-GOT-JUNK that did all of our internal products, building the software. I can't fucking code line one. Okay. So what I did to hire our people in engineering and IT was I brought in outside experts to do the skills side of interviewing. And I only interviewed for culture because mm. I, I couldn't learn it. I can't learn the finance and IT. So I brought in Marcelo from, from um, business objects. I brought in John from our accounting firm and they interviewed on the finance and IT and finance side. And I interviewed for cultural fit, but on the sales and marketing side, I knew enough about sales and marketing to interview on the skill side, as well as the core values and culture side. But I think on the, on the business side, we need, like, I had this, this, this discussion with Joe Polish, who runs the Genius Network. And Joe said, the CEOs have to be amazing at, at copywriting. I said, no. I just have to know where copywriting can apply in my business to know that we could use some experts who are world-class in copywriting. I have to know about landing pages. I have to know about squeeze pages. I have to know about split testing. I have to know that this stuff exists to then say, should we be doing this stuff? But I can't become operationally world-class at everything. I just have to know what exists. Right. But until you go through a little course to know, what, wow, there's actually a system behind delegation. Shit, people should know this. Right. You should kind of be at a bronze level of the, the business skills that exist or leaders should be. I like that. And the uh, I think that's helpful and a helpful frame. And I feel compelled to mention the the. I, I love Joe, uh, but the Joe Polishes of the world, that commentary, I think, is heavily informed by the type of business that is run by that entrepreneur. So when you get, it's really important to check the source. Joe is a direct response person. Right. So when he says, hey, the CEO needs uh, copywriting skills, it's because his world is direct response. Around that, for sure. Everything. Yeah. Every, his whole frame is, yeah. how do you get the response from the person that you're trying to sell to? Of course, that's my you know projection on him. No, very true. Because an IT person would say we need automations, right? right. We need proper tech stack. Very right. true. So I now need to know about tech stacks exist and, and automations can help. Okay, how can I find the right people for the least amount of money to get me to eighty percent of the way there? I'm always looking for like quick, easy wins, right? Bronze, silver, gold. I'm never looking for the perfect solution. I'm always looking for momentum, creating momentum in every area of the business. Right? How do I get more momentum for the, for the minimum amount of money, time, and people I've got? How do I get the highest ROI off that momentum? And then I think about any new system I put in place, like a satellite. Right? How much 
um, money or energy does it cost for a satellite to orbit the Earth? Hopefully none once it's Zero. up there. Zero. Right. Once it's up there. It costs right. a lot of money to get it in orbit. Once it's in orbit, it's free. So I look for solutions that I can get up into orbit that will then be free. Mm-hmm. Right. All of the reviews that I have for the CO Alliance or for a course, all the reviews I have for Vivid Vision, one of my books, those I think there's 603 reviews now on Amazon. Those reviews will pay dividends for the next five years. I worked hard to get them there, but once they're there, they pay off dividends for years. So I look for those easy wins. I'm not the smartest guy. I could, my business could certainly be bigger and better if I can get out of my own way and get other people to give me advice on it. I think that's what most of us need to do is spend less time running our business, more time getting exposure to other people who can see our business through a different lens. And then somehow deciding which are the easiest ideas to put in place that will give us momentum. I think that there's this balance in life and in business around the reality that there's simplicity in everything. And there's a through line to everything. Everything's the same in some capacity. And then also recognizing that there's nuance in all of it. Right. right. And so how in, in the way that I try to look at things is um, looking for the pattern that applies most of the time. Yeah. And then all the nuance, it, and my staff is really good at, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, this exception. What do I do in this scenario? And the answer is, that's fine. This is your, these are the guiding principles, so right? My, so my kind of guiding principle or focus around this would be, do managers and leaders need to know how to interview better? Yeah. Do they need to know how to run meetings? Absolutely. Should they be better at delegating? Probably. Do they need to be trained on time management? Yes. Do they coach people? Should they be trained in coaching? Yes. I kind of found the ones that are, yes, of course. And then how do I get them to bronze right, or <laughs> silver? I and want I, something I, better than gold, Cameron. But yeah. And that, but let's see, the diamond? Hard, can we do diamond? Uh, I can't, right? Like, but, but <laughs> you could. But, what, but there's, for me, there's diminishing returns because I often will stop. Mm. If I can't get them to diamond, then I won't do it. But man, silver is way better than where they are currently, mm. right? So if I can just get everybody to bronze and get everybody to silver, fuck, that gives me so much leverage, Yeah, right? And, 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 and yeah, there's companies out there like, you know, General Electric with their Six Sigma and their black belts, and they've got everybody dialed in. It's, but even at General Electric, it's only 1% or 2% of their employees are black belt Six Sigma. Sure. Right? So only those are at the platinum or gold level. But, but we do recognize or we need to recognize that we need to grow our people mm-hmm. to some level, right? We need to interview better than we interview today. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a company that's like certified and trained in top grading and, and stuff like Brad and Jeff Smart. Cool, man. Well, appreciate the time as always. and looking forward to uh, more of it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.